You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Hello and welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hahn. And we are your hosts of this aforementioned politics and pop culture podcast. We will each be educating you about a little something something that's happened in the month of July 2021. But first, Micah, how was that month? What did you get up to? Um, it was pretty good. I um, The last time uh, we recorded, I was in Montreal. I have mm-hmm. relocated back to Vancouver and moved everything back. Um, all your stuff from your studio stuff. apartment. Yeah. Was now it emotional nice. saying goodbye to it? It was. It was like, oh. it was weird. Um, I was very happy to leave. Like, it was not a very nice apartment. Um, but it was weird leaving the city yeah. in general. But that's okay. Now I'm here and it's very <laughs> nice here. Um, so it all, it all worked out in the end. Yeah. It all shakes out. Um, I also did some traveling in July, but this month has felt so long that honestly that feels like a lifetime ago, Mm -hmm. but I was in California at the beginning of the month uh, for a little 4th of July trip, which was lovely. And then since then, back in New York City, I actually had a friend come to visit, which was really nice because she hasn't been back in New York since like this time last year. So really nice to have people back in the city and be able to do some things together and hopefully that can last just a little bit longer. So we shall see. But yeah, uh, what other things did you get up to, my kid? Did you do any reading? Did you do any watching? Did you do any listening? Maybe we should start with the reading part of it. Um, I finally finished a book. It took me forever. Um, I usually read a lot in the summer. Just This was not happening for me. Um, but I finished Reproduction by Ian Williams. Um, it was the runner-up for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, which is, like, one of the big literary prizes in Vic Canada. Um, apparently, I really love stories about inter- intergenerational family through history stuff. So that's what yeah, this book is about. I know. It just keeps coming back. Um, mm. I think it's because literary novels really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about family, both traditional family but also like very non-traditional families um it's kind of hard to describe without spoiling i went in entirely blind um one thing about it though is it's written very stylistically so like the way that the story is told changes quite a bit um oh interesting yeah um the for example the last section is interspersed with conversations from the first section of the book um and and it's not like paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. It's like l- like a few words, like either in subscript or superscript, depending on who's saying it, like within the same within the sentence. And so, like, I understand what it was getting at. It was kind of like hitting me overhead that like this is circular and like it all comes to the same thing. Uh-huh. Um, but it made it like very difficult to read. Um, yeah, it seems like follow. that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then I like, I hate criticisms of books that are like, I didn't like the characters because you're not supposed to like, characters are not made for you to like them. Mm-hmm. Um, but like all the men in this book 
sucked so much and I didn't understand why they sucked and that's what bugged me like it felt like they were just like horrible people for the sake of being horrible people and then nothing ever changed like throughout the families um they all just were the worst Hmm. um maybe the moral of the story is that like patriarchy persists who knows right but i agree with you like we don't have to like someone but i i would want to be able to understand them and for them to be like a fully realized Mm -hmm. person and like fully fleshed out in that i would even want to understand them i've definitely read stories like that where it just kind of reads maybe a little um flat and which you can kind of get away with if you have warm feelings towards someone but if you don't it it stands out a little bit more yeah what did you read oh i actually want to put out a little request i would love some vacation books for an upcoming lake vacation i'll be taking in august i did read summer of 69 by elin hildebrand in july which i actually loved it's it was like a little cheesy in parts but it essentially follows Mm -hmm. a boston family who spend a summer the summer of 69 on (laughs) cape cod um and i emphasize the summer of 69 because like literally every like 1969 thing that could happen happened like there was a Mm -hmm. character who was like drafted in the vietnam war there was um the moon landing there was teddy kennedy driving his car into the lake like there was like that that even happened in this book like chappaquiddick happened in this book Mm. so it was like maybe a a little overkill and like silly like that but i kind of liked it so if anyone else has something similar to that they could recommend for vacation i would love to hear it um speaking of love did you watch anything you loved this month yeah i watched a couple things but the thing i wanted to chat about was maggie's plan um Mm. which is really like if you had to kind of mad lib not mad lib like pull stuff out of the hat of like movies that micah would love it would be Mm -hmm, this movie mm -hmm. so it's a romance it takes place in new york well she loves that Um, there's academia mm-hmm. um, is there an intergenerational gonna... family <laughs> there isn't well i guess uh, sort of um oh. <laughs> it is about having children um okay there's greta gerwig ah ethan hawk our good friend ethan yeah and bill Hader. and bill that is a that is a stacked cast it really is a stacked cast and so it's about maggie who has a plan oh, her plan um, yes her titular yeah. plan her titular plan. There's actually two plans, and I'm not entirely sure which one is the titular one, but regardless. Oh. Um, <laughs> one of the problems with the movie. Um, her first plan, which is the setup, is that she wants to have a baby on her own um, until she meets Ethan Hawke, who is a married professor feeling stuck in his life. Um, and uh, shenanigans ensue, affairs happen, <gasps> um, and then you cut forward x amount of years and another plan happens which i will not spoil for you oh unusual yeah um so i the setup great Mm -hmm. um the execution not so great um no it's just very like hit hit you over the head 
with like this is a quirky introspective movie. Oh. Um it's also <laughs> Which I want to come to myself. Like yes. I don't want to be told that cuz it's kind of like an obnoxious thing anyway. So like if you mm-hmm. can subtly pick it up, great. If you need to be told, hmm. Mm, yeah. Um it's also Greta Gerwig playing the same character that she played for like 5 years after Frances Ha. Like kind of I don't know what I'm doing with myself in the world. Um, oh, what was that other movie I watched her in where I'm pretty sure she was also wanting to have a baby and was the same kind of thing. They all like lived in a house or something. Oh, 20th Century Woman. Yeah, I think it's that. Yeah. But that's a fantastic movie. Would recommend. There's a recommendation on top for you. If you say so. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I've, I loved it at the time. One of Maggie's plan. Maggie's plan. Sorry, um, I, I interrupted. That was my whole review. It's um, fun. You get to see all of your friends. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Watch it when you like. Want to hang out in bed instead of go out. Which, even though we live in a post-pandemic world, and I thought that would never happen, it still sometimes does. So it really does. You get used to the indoors. Yeah, I have also had some things to do or watch more accurately indoors. Um, and I've actually been served that entertainment extremely regularly because I have been watching Love Island UK, which I bring up pretty much every year on this show. Um, and the premise of it is, if you know, you haven't been a long time listener, you've been living under a rock and don't watch the show. It is a show about a hot singles who have like insane British accents and lots of fake mm-hmm. fans who live on an island for the summer in an attempt to find love. So it's now on Hulu in the U.S., and it literally drops every day, six days a week. So it's Monday to Friday and Sundays as well, and the episodes are like 45 minutes long. So there is like so much Love Island to be consumed. However, I do think this season is like just fine. It's it's just fine. The thing that kind of makes it most interesting is the premise or like the show's intervention. The producers are doing like a, a lot of work here and I got to applaud them for that. Like, for example, in one episode, the girls get very excited to learn they'll all be going on a brunch together outside of the villa. But then they later discover it was all a ruse for the show to bring in new girls who are very eager to get to know the original girls' Mm. guys. So there's some pretty, like, shocking moments like that um, that are definitely very set up, and I love it. Otherwise, just fine. If you're watching it, I would still like to talk about it. So (laughs) that's really it for me. Have you listened to anything, though? Um, I don't have a lot of new listening. I finally started listening to a podcast that you recommended. I don't even know Ooh. how long ago. Um, I've been listening uh-huh. to Chatty Broads. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I um, haven't been tuning in lately because I have not been watching this season of The Bachelorette. But if mm, you are, it's a good listen. I have been listening to this season. And um, I like their recaps a lot. They're very um, – if you haven't watched The Bachelorette, they're very anti-Greg, which um, – Oh, I think is going to come to fruition to be the absolute 100% correct take. Um, is he so someone that people kind of like, but might people be sketchy? In the first, oh. like, in the first, he, he like, 
did he win the first impression rose? Yeah, he was like her favorite. Uh-huh. Um, but then last week he got a date and it was kind of surprising and he looked like he was going to die. Like he he looked so upset that he got a date. And then he was like, hmm. I'm so shocked and excited, guys. But like was dead inside. He also um is trained to be an actor, but like does not mention this whatsoever anywhere in the show. Hmm. Um, okay, so they're getting sus vibes from Greg, and you think, but he's those also sus like very tradi- I think so. He's also very traditionally handsome, um, ah. and like kind of goofy or whatever. And he's shy, and you know how much like American women love, love a handsome, yeah. shy guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. So they want to think they're the one that's recognizing his hotness, as if no one's ever done it before, and they'll just bring him out. Exactly. Um, one thing they mentioned. Um, on the podcast which I think speaks to his character is that there are too many to be comfortable pictures of him shirtless with his young nieces and nephews <laughs> like at the beach or like on a couch for like like that t- speaks to his character I think yeah it's it's not weird that we're saying on Instagram not that we're saying there's anything like untoward but no, no, no. To me, it more makes me think that it's like they're props to show off your hotness. You know, exactly. you're you're aware like I'll take my shirt off, I'll look super hot doing this, and also like chicks dig kids, so I'll check a couple of those in the pic. And I think it'd be one thing if it's like your own children, but when you've had to like kind of go out of your way to hang out with kids, it's it's mm-hmm. it might seem a bit proppy. I don't know. I'm gonna watch this season. I can't speak to Greg, but. Yeah, from what um, you just told me, Mike, I'm gonna trash his character on <laughs> on live podcasting. Yeah, yeah. So I've been listening to Chatty Broads because I have no one to talk to the Bachelorette with, and this is a way to get some Bachelorette fan theory going. Oh, that's actually, you know what? That has reminded me that I have been listening to something this month because I was gonna say mm-hmm. I haven't been listening to anything, and I would really like more recommendations because my vacay will involve a little driving and I would like something to listen to along the way. Um, you know, something like nice white parents that we discussed last year that, you know, would just really keep us captivated for the, you know, four or five hours we'll be in a car. But I have remembered that I have started watching the bachelor Australia and Mm. one of my favorite Australian podcasts, life uncut, uh, which one of the hosts, is a contestant who had won a season of The Bachelor and is still engaged to the guy and they have two kids together and they're very, very happy. But her and uh, The Bachelor himself, so Laura and Matt, are doing recap episodes once a week. So the podcast is now coming out more regularly and one of those episodes is a recap one. And I've already listened to the first one. Very interesting because they have such like inside knowledge on how the show yeah. works having like because Matt was a contestant on The Bachelorette and then went on to become The Bachelor and then Laura obviously was a contestant on The Bachelor and won so I think it's sort of rare to listen to one where it's someone who's been all the way twice mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I've listened to a lot of ones where it's been like people who've been knocked out pretty early for instance like becca on chatty yeah. broads you know she, she like wasn't... made it almost a fantasy suites but not quite yeah she wasn't the winner so it was 
interesting to see someone as well like you get the impression that the bachelor or bachelorette themselves have more an idea of the workings oh, yeah. than the contestants so definitely intriguing to get both of their perspective on things and just a reminder of like how different the australian franchise is to the u.s one like you mentioned fantasy suites they don't exist on the australian one mm-hmm. um the first episode they had like a group date and Jimmy the bachelor kissed a girl in front of the other girls. And that has like, I hate that. That's basically never happened on the Australian one before because it's like a rule Mm -hmm. that you don't make out in front of other people, which I've seen a lot on the American one. So that was strange. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I haven't watched the latest episode, but I do know that I think for, Oh, it wasn't last year. It was the year before. So for, for a second year, there is an at least one episode long arc where we're trying to find out, did somebody say the C word? So that's how Australian the show is, is that there is another C word scandal. Yet another nice. one. Yeah. So Bachelor Australia and Life Uncut. I'm going to hop on your rec there, Micah, and add those in. Um, okay, welcome to politics. Um, it is that time again. Um, one year delayed, but it is the Summer Olympics, which are in <gasps> full swing at Tokyo 2020. Um, as a sidebar, how do you feel about the fact that they're being called Tokyo 2020 despite it being 2021? Hmm. I feel torn. Like, I understand why they're doing it because the Olympics is on this, like, four-year schedule Mm -hmm. right and they obviously want to stick to the 2024 one or whatever but it does kind of mess with your head right when you see it i'm like what year am i in and then i mean you're always gonna have to write a footnote in the history books that they actually took place in 2021 so Mm -hmm. i don't really see what the problem is i assume they just pumped a lot of money into everything that already said 2020 right i assume so so. that only occurred to me recently i was like oh yeah like that makes sense um, it's too late now. Yeah, maybe everyone's like uniforms were just done already, or all like the stadiums had already yeah. been painted or something like that. But yeah, are you also iffy about the twenty twenty situation? It just it just feels weird. Like I know it's twenty. I have a hard enough time remembering that it's twenty twenty one that I don't need this constant like mind Confusion. bender. Yeah, yeah, it feels like we're accessing a little glimpse into an alternate universe where 2020 was normal and the Olympics just like happened Mm -hmm. on time, but it is strange. It's very strange. So we're going to talk about the Olympics in the politics section of the podcast. Um, So the Olympic charter um, has one of its fundamental principles of political neutrality. Um, But It is far uh, from the case that the Olympics are actually free from politics. Um, This year, more than ever, we see the Olympics are steeped in controversy, and a lot of that is political controversy. Um, And I think that's actually on par for the games. They've always been political. You can't, like, bring the entire world together and not have some sort of um, politics taking place. Um, So I thought we would talk a little bit about historically how politics in the Olympics have taken place, and then a couple examples from this year. Um, This list is not exhaustive. I feel like you could go on forever, but here are just some examples that uh, I thought were interesting. 
So historically, okay. I think, yeah. Excited about this. That's all Good. I want to say. Just I'm very That's excited. Good. Um, so when I think about politics at the Olympics, I think first and foremost about the fight for racial justice, mm-hmm. which has been um, a big part of the Olympics, it being like this huge world stage and um, a place where you can really get heard. So I think the first instance of this is Jesse Owens. Um, so he became a central figure in the 1936 Olympics that were held in Germany. Now, if you're a history buff or you just like pay attention a little bit, 1936 was not a great time in Germany. Um, it was the beginning of the Third Reich, and so Hitler was in charge. Um, and really, you could see the Olympics itself is quite political because a lot of it was Hitler posturing to the rest of the world to show how well the country was doing after the Depression and try and spread the word of the Third Reich to the world before the uh, he eventually just went to war with the world. And obviously Hitler is Hitler, and he um, was very openly racist. Um, and so there was this huge division in the U.S. specifically about whether it should be boycotted and whether specifically Jesse Owens, who was already one of um, a big star in the U.S. as a runner, should go. He decided to go. Um, And when he went, he won four gold medals. And now, looking back on it, and I think then as well, um, that event is like seen as him defying Hitler's theories about racial supremacy. I think it's probably more complicated than that. And it's like a very rosy tale to tell. Mm. Um, And that can be seen like it was 1936, like this black man was not invited to the White House to meet the president afterwards, um, which normally is what happens. Wow. But I think in the story of, like, athletics and the fight against racism, Jesse Owens is, like, rightly so, he was, like, an amazing athlete and faced a huge amount of injustice. Like, he's brought up with this big person. Um, I think the more, like, iconic image an event about racial justice at the Olympics is when Tommy Smith and John Carlos rose their fists um, at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. So they won gold and bronze at a track event, and when they were on the podium, um, faced the flag and then raised fists wearing black gloves um, in support of the Black Power movement. And this was, like, huge. They were censured. It was... Everyone was very upset with them. The Olympics were like, we're apolitical, despite the fact that 30 years before, the everyone on the podium who was from Germany was hailing Hitler. They were also doing things with their arms. Hello, editing Micah here. I didn't finish my thought while we were recording, but what I was trying to say was that clearly the IOC isn't apolitical because they didn't have any problem with German athletes hailing Hitler. Um, but they clearly had a problem with the black power symbol. I did not mean to suggest that they were the same in any way. Obviously, very different actions. Anyways, on with the show. So I think this is probably one of the most iconic images, not just of the civil rights era, but of the Olympics in general. Um, I also think the story about the last man on the podium, um, Peter Norman from Australia, is really interesting. He um, wore a human rights pin in solidarity with them. But then when he, he was white, when he returned to Australia, he was ostracized 
from his community, from the sport, and generally treated pretty poorly for standing up for racial justice. Um, and he received an apology, a posthumous apology from the Australian government a couple years ago. Wow. Um, yeah, and he has a statue in, I can't remember where he's from in Australia. Um, but Tommy Smith and John Carlos are still alive, kicking it um, really big in the Olympics. Um, like, still. Mm-hmm doing activism um in the most recent olympics when we think of racial justice we can think of gwen berry who was at the u.s olympic trials for track as well um and she turned away from the flag during the national anthem which as if you've been following sports and politics at all you know that the national anthem has become incredibly contentious Mm -hmm. in american politics and sports as people have been kneeling during it as a sign of protest um and she said that it was weird because in a national competition they generally do not play the national anthem during the podium so yeah, she kinda felt doesn't she, really make sense right? yeah like, like everyone uh, is american yeah um and so she said she was blindsided and had to make a split second decision about whether or not she was gonna stand for the flag um and she decided to turn away um and look down so and she got a huge amount of flack for that mm. So that's uh, racial justice and the Olympics and just some examples. There are so many more. Um, Then geopolitics is like a huge part of the Olympics. Mm So um, one big thing is who gets to participate. So while the Olympic International Olympic Committee, the IOC, says they're politically neutral, they still decide who and who and what countries get to participate in the Olympics. Right. So for many, many years, China and North Vietnam were excluded, um, essentially because they had communist um, leaders. Um, There was a long debate about whether Taiwan would be recognized as a country. Um, And then also in 2016, um, the IOC put together what they called the Refugee Olympic Team. So it Um, was a way of recognizing athletes who had no country to represent. I love that. I think that's a really great idea because it's not something, honestly, like I had thought about that there will be people who Mm -hmm. wouldn't have a country, but of course there are. And it's, you know, they should be able to go to the Olympics if they have the desire and the ability to just the same as everyone else, you know? Yeah. Um, I think like from that list that I said, um, you can tell that, and like the general history of the international olympic committee they're not good people that's a hit like very important part of the like (laughs) politics of the olympic they really suck Mm -hmm. um the favoring has always been for the west and like whoever america is aligned with at the time um and i think that's a really important thing to remember like when you see the olympics like who is favored and who's um who is considered part of the world um one example of geopolitics playing out very clearly in um, the Olympics is uh, the case of South Africa, specifically when it was still an apartheid regime. Um, so the Supreme Council of Sports in Africa, or the SCSA, um, was compromised of 32 African nations. Um, and they, one of their huge goals was to... Um, boycott South Africa through sport. And oh. so they called on all nations to not 
enter any competitions with South Africa. Um, and one way they did this was they threatened to not join the 1968 Olympics if South Africa was there. And they were successful in that. Um, and this then led to larger boycotts against South Africa and avenues outside of the Olympics. So sorry, just to clarify, the IOC was like, South Africa, you cannot come. Yes. Okay. But only because 32 nations were like, we will not be sending our athletes. Right, right. Um, so that like kind of started this movement against South African um, participating in any events that South Africa was a part of. But then in 1976, which um, just like months before the Montreal Olympics, the New Zealand rugby team announced they were going to do a tour of South Africa. Hmm. And like, ref- and just like refused to back down in any way. The prime minister was like, "No, they'll be going." Um, and the Supreme Council for Sports in Africa was like, "Well, if they continue with this, um, we will and and you allow New Zealand, who has broken this agreement to boycott, to yeah. come to the Olympics. We will not come to the Olympics." And so there they were, like, it was days before the Olympics were to start. Almost all of the athletes were already there. And the IOC was like, no, New Zealand can stay. Like, they aren't committing apartheid. They're allowed to stay. Right. Um, And so then all but two African nations left the Games, like, days before it was about to start. So they were already there? And they were just like, bye. Yeah. And so that, that was 400 athletes in 14 different events. Wow, that takes real courage. That is really sticking to your guns. That's, I mean, for the right reasons. So, yeah, that's great. Um, And then after that, I think even further action was taken to stop, like, boycott South Africa and sports, but then obviously in other things until Mm -hmm. their apartheid regime ended in the 90s. Um, So that's, like, global politics. There's also really interesting municipal politics involved, in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, so people talk about the Olympics as a way to um, put your city on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have like discussions about whether this like really happens. I think like Vancouver had the Olympics in 2010 and I think it's a much more talked about city now than it was before. Yeah. I suppose it like um, depends on the city itself. Right. Like, yeah. If it's, to look at some recent games like London and Tokyo I think are like two of the cities people first think of when they're thinking of cities that exist so I don't know what extra good that's doing in terms of putting on the map but obviously there's other benefits as well Mm -hmm. so fame might come with Olympic games but fortune rarely does um the Olympic games are like notoriously unprofitable um, since the 70s, as they've added more and more events, cities have just lost more and more money hosting the games. Oh, this sounds um, like the Eurovision scandal that um, Ireland mm-hmm. was involved with. So if you don't know, if you win the Eurovision, you have to host the next year. And there was a while there in like the 90s where Ireland won like three or four years in a row. So we were just constantly hosting Eurovision. But it just got to the stage where like we couldn't afford it because you were just losing money mm-hmm. every year on hosting it. And then there was like a theory that they had sent like a rubbish act to the next <laughs> Eurovision because like we we're like, I-, I don't want this anymore. We cannot host this for another year in a row. So it does seem like people will still really 
you know, push for hosting the Olympics? Or am I am I wrong in that? I think it it depends. Um, okay. So in that kind of seventies shift, um, we saw for the first time a city just reject the nomination that they had won. Oh. So that was in 1972, Denver had to reject their nomination because they had a municipal referendum, um, which failed. Um, and the referendum was about whether they would use more public funding to, like, fund the Olympics. And oh. the people of Denver were like, no, that's not going to benefit us. They're like, we don't um, care that much about the Olympics. Yeah. Fair. I'm sorry if you can hear motorcycles behind me. Um Mainly seagulls, so it's adding a nice ambiance. Uh, and seagulls, yeah. Good good ambiance. Um, so the 1976 Montreal Olympics, there seems to be like a couple Olympics that come over it up again and again. Montreal, real political mess. Um, right. They projected it was going to cost $124 million. Um, They ended up being $1.5 billion in <laughs> debt after the Olympics. Um, oh, gosh. I, I think it's really funny because if you go to Montreal, the like ghost of Olympics past is everywhere in the city. Mm-hmm. Like they built so much and it's still for the most part in use, but like not a huge amount, but it's everywhere. I mean, right. Cause the things are so big. Like mm-hmm. even the pools are enormous and stuff like that. I mean, there's not really many cities that would just readily have even a few of those facilities. Yeah. So LA there, was one of know? them. Um, LA hosted around the same time, and they're the only Olympics that's made money really since then. Summer Olympics, right? Um, because they refused to build anything new and just used like football stadiums that already existed and like all the existing stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there, there we go. But I guess as like the events get more elaborate, you're going to be stretching how much you can be reusing stuff. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, so, for example, Rio, mm-hmm. like, infamously a disaster. Um, yeah. Despite the fact that they, like, allegedly used, like, essentially slave labor to build all of their um, stadiums. And they, like, unhoused yes. so many people. After they um, kicked people out of their homes yes. uh, to do that. Because they yeah. built them, like, where the favelas were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they built all these things, lost so much money, and then have just abandoned all of them. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not repurposing most of these, um, like, infrastructures that they've built. Which I can so, also kind yeah. of understand. Like, how often can you be using these huge things? Especially, mm-hmm. like, okay, maybe a country like the U.S. where you're sending hundreds of athletes to the Olympics and you know, you're doing really, really well all the time and you've got a pretty diverse sports program. Maybe you can, like, reuse a lot of assets mm-hmm. in a city. But, I mean, I I don't know how often, like, our, even how big the Brazilian team is and how often they're able to be reusing things like yeah. that. So. Um, for sure. I think certain infrastructure does get reused. So, like, Vancouver's example, I know intimately, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the Olympic Village was then sold off as apartments and is, like, a thriving part of the city. Um, the big cool. thing we got, it is cool. Um, the big thing we got was a SkyTrain to the airport, which is oh. what we call our like metro system. So that was like a huge benefit to the city. Um, and some cities like Barcelona report that they've had increased tourism, which they say is a benefit. Um, 
but in general, and I think especially after the Tokyo Olympics, um, cities are becoming much more resistant to hosting. And right. whenever it gets put to a vote of the people in the city, it usually fails. So recently, Calgary um, failed to pass a referendum on bidding for another Winter Olympics. Interesting. So even the cities that like have some of the infrastructure are like, right. we don't want to do this. Yeah, and I mean, especially with this games, because that's like a lot of what I was thinking about with this one, because they haven't really got spectators and like athletes mm-hmm. can't bring their families. One of the big sources of revenue when you host the games is you're getting all these people coming and they need to stay in hotels and they need to eat the McDonald's and they need to like buy tickets mm-hmm. and stuff. And you haven't got any of those people coming. You've got athletes in a bubble like who are not even going out for dinner. So yeah. You have no hope of making the money. Literally yeah, none. I, none at all. I think this transitions well into like politics this year. Mm-hmm. So obviously the pandemic is like the big thing on everyone's mind. Um, they delayed it last year because we we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And one year later, we are still in a global pandemic, but the games are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, among the Japanese, the games are hugely unpopular a week before the games, 14% of Japanese people supported it and everyone else was against it, including top medical officers in Japan. <sighs> um, but canceling the games is much easier said than done. Um, so the IOC is actually the ones who get to decide whether they cancel the games. It's in the contract that they signed with Japan. Right. Um, so Japan has no choice, like even if they had a, like an uprising about the games. They couldn't do anything about it. Um, There's also so much money riding on the games. Um, Japan is estimated to have spent $15 billion already. Oh, my Um, gosh. And they probably would have lost more money if they had canceled them. Right. Um, There's also, like, a huge amount of legal contracts Uh um, that they would have broken. Um. So it meant that the pandemic games had to happen. Um, That is fully crazy. And I think just like the, obviously the games being global is, it's it's so interesting to me because like you can, there's different risks associated with having like a sports tournament in the US right now where like everyone has had the opportunity to be vaccinated for Mm -hmm. months and months and months right but you are gathering people from all around the world where from countries where people have not had that opportunity like there's Mm -hmm. surely a ton of not just ones by choice but like athletes going who haven't had the opportunity to be vaccinated and oh yeah yeah that is i think it just like exposes the inequities around the world as well Oh, for sure. Mm. Um, and also, like, the privileges that certain people have to choose not to be vaccinated. Right, exactly. there are definitely people there as well. Um, speaking of choosing not to be vaccinated, um, one interesting political thing with this Olympics um, that I was reading about was about U.S. domestic politics and how that's mm-hmm. playing out through the Olympics. Um, so I think generally we think of the Olympics as a time for countries to come together within themselves and like have national unity to cheer on their athletes. Um, but this year, um, the American right and Republicans in general have been pretty anti-Olympics and anti-US athletes. 
Um, so Caleb Akarama has a really good article at Vanity Fair about this. And basically he outlines how um, the right has been going after U.S. athletes for being too woke. Um in mm-hmm. fact, Trump suggested that the U.S. women's soccer team lost to Sweden because they were too busy being woke to uh, play soccer well. Um, right. A okay. huge, yeah. Um, and a huge part of this has been the right going after Simone Biles um, because she decided that it, she wasn't in the, a mental state to safely participate in um, – at this point of recording this two competitions, we'll see if she does them. Um, and she's been called a selfish psychopath and too weak to represent America. Um, which is like so bizarre as well, because there's obviously a lot of factors that go into this, but I mean, one being there's athletes that like pull out all the time and no one notices, but she's high profile and people want to attach a lot of negativity to that. And I think because the U S gymnastics team is like, one of the big like has so much money behind it yeah um but i think it just shows how the olympics get enmeshed in like whatever both domestic and global politics are happening at the time exactly yeah um to end it on like a higher note um i think this has been especially in canada the olympics for women um Mm. I say in Canada because at the time of recording, we have 10 medals and every single one of them has been won by a woman. Yes, um, yes, yes. Who which is just world? like Canadian cool. girls. Who run the world? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's really exciting. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion of uniforms, which you've probably seen online. Um, so like the week before, the month before the Olympics, um, the Norwegian handball team was at the Euro 2021 tournament Mm -hmm. and they refused to wear these like really skimpy bikini bottoms that are the uniforms. Um, And they instead were like, well, we're still like rather small shorts, but covered a bit more. Um, And they did it because they wanted to feel comfortable. Um, And then they were fined by the tournament because they weren't wearing like the tiniest bikini bottoms possible that's like um fully bizarre it makes literally no sense especially since in other sports like swimming and stuff it seems like it's kind of up to you what you wear and you just wear what yeah best for you as long as it's not breaking any like cheater cheater rules you know well there was the thing about um black women who weren't allowed to wear certain um swim caps that would be better for their hair yeah yeah i guess i was thinking like body wise you see people wearing lots of different lengths of outfits Mm -hmm. so fully bizarre how do you write someone up for that be like sorry you didn't show enough of your booty so i you were in trouble yeah um in a similar vein the german gymnastics team decided to wear like the full length leotards that went to their ankles like the men wear um instead of the like really tiny leotards that you traditionally see women gymnasts wearing Mm -hmm. Um, and they did it because they said they were much more comfortable in it um so it's really cool to see women taking like claiming their own body back being like we are athletes and not like here to be displayed no especially when there's such arbitrary rules like get over yourself you know it's just like so silly the women's uh women specifically soccer teams um have been 
participating in the kind of ongoing legacy of racial justice at the Olympics. So the U.S., um, Great Britain, New Zealand, and Chilean team all took a knee before the game, which we're seeing kind of more and more in sports generally. Mm -hmm. We also saw Luciana Alvarado, um, who is an artistic gymnast from Costa Rica, end her floor routine with doing like a black power fist and taking a knee. It's really cool to see politics at the Olympics. It's partially because the IOC changed their rules of you're allowed to like do some political gestures as long as it isn't harming anyone. So like you can't like right. hail Hitler or similar. Not anymore. It's not. It's not 1936. Not anymore. Yeah. Finally, anymore. that's that's been banned. Right. And then thinking of women, I wanted to come back to Simone Biles mm-hmm. um, because I think it is really. And Naomi Osaka as well as like Mm -hmm. a similar kind of thing of women putting their mental health before pleasing other people. Mm -hmm. Like she knew that performing when she wasn't at her mental peak was really dangerous, like physically dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, She fell really badly and knew it was because of her mental state. True, yeah. I've been reading commentary that said like if any other gymnast who wasn't as good as her had fallen like that, they would have like – been incredibly injured Mm. and i think we forget how much pressure has been put on her um she in an interview at the beginning of the games said that originally she hadn't want didn't want to come to tokyo 2020 but she found herself being one of the last elite gymnasts who had been a victim of larry nasser who if you um don't remember was the team usa doctor and had has been charged um, and found guilty of sexually assaulting, I think, legally dozens, but in reality, maybe hundreds of young girls. Um, and she said, I wanted to be here because I wanted to make sure USA Gymnastics was accountable on the world stage because they need to change. And so, like, she has the weight of, like, generations of gymnasts after her on her shoulders and... Of course, like, that would put a huge amount of pressure on someone. Absolutely. And I think she's done a really good job of, like, leading the team. They've all said that, right? There was, mm-hmm. you know, she's a good presence for them and a good leader for them, even if she's not competing herself. And as I yeah. said before, I think if anyone else on the team dropped out, no one would notice. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, she has so many eyes on her that now it's created backlash. Yeah. So generally, I think it's been really nice and exciting to see women at the front of the Olympics. And we see like how like sports generally a lo- for a long time and still are like are painted as this kind of macho, um, all grit kind of event. But I think giving space um, and lifting up people who like aren't typically what we would think of as like athletes Mm. specifically women and we've seen like non-binary and trans people in these olympics a bit more is really exciting and i think like that in itself is political to like push against traditional norms in the olympics so to change tact from the olympics to i guess another high profile situation uh celebrities always high profile their babies Mm -hmm. also high profile and how we are seeing these 
through the paparazzi. Yes, that was a very roundabout way of me saying that today's pop culture topic is celebrity children and paparazzi. And so kind of my lead into this is I was thinking a lot about how celebrities have long had this tumultuous relationship with the paparazzi. We see a lot of different extremes, you know, these celebrities being accused of calling the paparazzi on themselves for a little extra PR. And I'm sure that is completely accurate. But then we also have like Princess Diana being killed in a high speed paparazzi chase in Paris. So there it's a pretty, pretty controversial topic. And this month, two big names specifically called out paps for taking pics of their kids, which made me start to question like, what is the problem? Is there a problem? And how can we fix it specifically in regards mm-hmm. to paparazzi and children? Um, so to sum that up, while there are instances of celebrities not liking to be papped, you know, when um, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone were together, we would see them covering their faces with signs that were like links to charity websites and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or we've had celebrities who've been like charged with attacking the paparazzi it seems like it's something that's not fabulous in your day-to-day life there is like a particular hatred for paparazzi taking pictures of celebrity children from celebrities themselves so for example john krasinski and emily blunt they had um, a little girl call hazel a few years ago and when she was born john krasinski tweeted pics of kids should only come direct from parents. So I'm thrilled to introduce you guys to Hazel. Many explanation marks. That's kind of like a little subtle jab that he didn't want Mm -hmm. the paparazzi to be outside the house and getting a picture of him putting her in the car or anything like that. It was supposed to come from him directly to the fans. And Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis have been similarly outspoken about their dislike or disdain for the paparazzi snapping unexpected photos of their daughter Wyatt uh Ashton Kutcher tweeted why is it so hard for publications to respect that I would like the identity of my child kept private for safety reasons please honor that and that was uh following an instance of pictures of Wyatt being published without the couple's permission so really not liking that idea. It really feels like quite invasive to people to the point where Mm -hmm. some celebrities have taken action. So Halle Berry and Jennifer Garner actually pushed forward legislation in 2013 that was passed in California and it basically allowed for civil action and increased jail time um, and fines for the intentional harassment of a child because of their parents' job. So that term harassment in this instance was including things like or any type of conduct that seriously alarms, annoys, determines, or terrorizes a child. So that could be recording a child's image or voice without their express consent. So in this instance, it applies to, you know, not just how you'll be taking the picture. You know, you don't want to be alarming or terrorizing the child by jumping out of a bush at them. But you also shouldn't be taking pictures of children and publishing them that would then later cause them like ridicule, you know? So Mm -hmm. with this new legislation passed by Halle Berry or pushed forward by Halle Berry and Jennifer Garner, who are both celebrity moms, 
Um, it increased the maximum fine from $1,000 up to $10,000 and the jail time from six months to one year. And, you know, Jennifer Garner was pretty emotional when she was speaking about this um, in her testimony in 2013. She said, in the course of our ordinary day, trips to school, the pediatrician, ballet, or the grocery store, paparazzi swarm. Large, aggressive men swarm us, causing a mob scene, yelling, jockeying for position, crowding around the kids. My four-year-old says, why do these men never smile? Why do they never go away? Why are they always with us? So it doesn't sound like a nice experience for anyone, especially a child um, who should just be allowed to go about their lives as a regular child would, you know? And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, not everyone thought that. And there was a little bit of furore over how this Californian law would play with the First Amendment, which, you know, is about freedom of speech and press. However, this has been like pretty much debunked because you're not reporting anything really by taking a picture of a child, right? Like how are you doing the the world of service with your press if you're snapping a picture of Northwest crying, you know? And you're not allowed to be harassing people anyway. The First Amendment doesn't protect you from doing what you want to people. So mm-hmm. it's it's fine. And in my opinion, anyway, I think you can see where where my where the direction I'm, I'm coming from is on this whole topic. But because of laws like this, other celebrities have successfully or at least attempted to prosecute. So a couple of examples, uh, in 2017, George and Amal Clooney promised to prosecute when the following instance happened. So as George put it, over the last week, photographers from uh, Voicey Magazine scaled our fence, climbed our tree, and illegally took pictures of our infants inside our home. Make no mistake, the photographers, the agency, and the magazine will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. The safety of our children demands it. So... In this instance, like, I think safety can be explained in a few different ways. Obviously, it might be quite distressing to the child um, to have, like, a man in your garden. But also having their image published allows a lot of creepy people to know what those kids look like. So definitely a twofold mm-hmm. concern on safety there. Um, Adele also filed a lawsuit in 2014 after Corbis Images UK Limited Uh, shared photos of her or photographed and published photos of her son Angelo's milestone moments, such as his first family outing and his first trip to playgroup. And this was expressly against the family wishes. Funny um, that we talk about Corbis because they were actually established in 1989 by Microsoft's own Bill Gates, who does like a lot of work to protect children, but seems to be okay with, an organization like this existing. So that is how celebrities have kind of reacted and started pushing for laws or enforcing laws in order to protect their children from the paparazzi and from the publication of their images. But some celebrities have also gone about things a different way. By some, I really mean Kristen Bell and Dak Shepard. So in 2014, they started the hashtag no kids policy campaign on Twitter, where they announced they would no longer give interviews to magazines that published photos of any celebrity children without consent. And they did a lot of different 
activations around this. So they talk to photo houses like Getty Images about their policy of distributing pictures of children or celebrity children taken without their consent. And they also appeared on Access Hollywood, where they sat down with the owner of a paparazzi agency named Steve Ginsburg and a reporter called Christian Zimmerman to discuss the issue. So kind of similar to Jennifer Garner, um, Kristen Bell told them, as a mom, when I'm holding my baby, your foot soldiers are nasty. What they're doing might be legal, but when I get off an airplane and I'm walking to my car when it's dark and I'm with my baby by myself, it's terrifying. And Dak Shepard said what I think a lot of us would also believe, that is, if you don't have an ethical issue with that, then I don't think you have ethics. And yeah, unfortunately, that sounds like Dax Shepard. Right? Uh, pretty forceful and uh, pretty damning. But unfortunately, the the owner of the agency and the reporter didn't really agree. Steven Ginsburg said that he wouldn't really stop this because if, Steve, if his company doesn't pay the paps for these photos, other ones will. So Dak Shepard then wrote an essay called Why Our Children Should Be Off Limits to Paparazzi. And that was sort of designed to speak to the public more about this. So I'm going to read you some bits of it because they're pretty funny. He begins with, A few months ago, we were invited to a gathering at the home of Jennifer Garner. The bulk of the attendants were actors and musicians. I was excited. We had finally been invited to a celebrity orgy. I had heard about these as a 15-year-old boy from Michigan. And now, 23 years later, I was at one. Jennifer addressed the crowd, but instead of discussing boundaries, safe words, and hygiene, she walked us through California Senate Bill 606, which made it illegal to photograph a child because of their parents' employment in a manner that seriously alarms, annoys, torments, or terrorizes them. And he said that he basically came away from that night really liking what Jennifer Garner and Halle Berry were doing with this bill that they wanted passed, but he couldn't help but think that it only addressed one side of the equation and not the demand aspect of it, which is us as consumers willing to buy magazines and click on these magazines' websites that feature photos taken by men who have jumped out of the bushes at little kids. And mm-hmm. he then spoke to people like us saying, we think that people who like looking at children's in magazines must actually like children. We're betting on the chance that they like them enough to protect them from constantly being shadowed by strange men, not trying to be sexist. I'm sure there are plenty of strange women in the Razzie game. We pray that one of the classier weeklies like People will enact a no kids policy and that they will be rewarded by the consumer for doing so. So that was his kind of urging and what he wanted us to get from it. And to sort of hammer that home, he did answer a lot of questions that people might ask about this whole issue, including the idea that celebrities sign up to be papped, which is something that I agree with, right? These people are being paid a ton of money and getting a lot of benefits and a very cushy lifestyle from their choice of work. And getting your photo taken when you're out and about is something that kind of comes with the territory. But there are lots of lines to be drawn here, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's different from if you're walking in the park, getting your photo taken from someone sneaking into your back garden and taking a photo of you there. You know, that's private property. So there's laws to protect you there. But 
it's also not cool for someone to take a photo up your skirt, which people like Gina Martin, who we have spoken about in a previous episode, have worked to make illegal in lots of different countries. And obviously you can like never legally be physically and verbally attacked. So there's rules to protect you there. But it basically seems like fair game that, you know, you can take a polite and picture of a celebrity when they're in a public space and, you know, you're not upskirting them or various things like that. But as Dax states that while parents might sign up for that, their kids don't. And even if their kids might be okay with it, they don't really legally have agency because they are children. So Mm -hmm. especially they don't sign up to be frightened. And I think we can all agree that intentionally frightening a child is bad and exposing a child's identity when the parents have legitimate fears that that will place them at a safety risk. Um, that is also bad. So I found Dak Shepard's essay very, very interesting read. I'll definitely pop a link to it in the show notes. But the cool thing was that the work of him and Kristen Bell actually had some kind of response on the industry. So Entertainment Tonight, Access Hollywood, Inside Edition, NBC's Today Show, Just Jared, Us Weekly, People Magazine, and Perez Hilton all agreed to stop publishing unauthorized kids shots. However, how that has played out over the past like seven or so years since then is kind of a different story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we can all agree that we've seen paparazzi shots of children in the past seven years, right? Um, As well, the editor of People and Entertainment Weekly at the time, Jess Cagle, wrote in a letter that they were kind of like not going to uphold this. So he -hmm. wrote, when I took over as editorial director of People in January, I told our staff that people would not publish photos of celebs' kids taken against their parents' wishes in print or online. So... By that, the official people policy is that sanctioned photos like exclusive baby pictures taken with the cooperation of celebrity parents and photos of stars posing with their kids at events like a red carpet where they're expecting and willing to be photographed are A-OK. And I think that's fine. But then Kegel went on to say, of course, there may be rare exceptions based on the newsworthiness of photos, which I don't really understand because I can't really see why a child would be newsworthy like Mm -hmm. you're kind of just opening that up to everything then right like as we spoke about previously john krasinski specifically did not want the paparazzi taking a picture of his baby before he could introduce her to the world and if you're saying newsworthy maybe you sneaking a shot of him walking out of the hospital could be considered that so Mm -hmm. i don't love that i especially don't love the line that came after it which is And there's always the tough balancing act we face when dealing with stars who exploit their children one day and complain about loss of privacy the next. To me, that feels really, really icky because I'm not really sure what they're saying exploitation is or how you how they think celebrities are exploiting a child. I think a celebrity should be allowed to post pictures of their kids on social media if they want to. Lots of them don't. Like, you know, we've never seen Christian Bell and Dak Shepard's kids' faces on social media, but other celebrities might be cool with that, and that's fine. And they might also be cool with, like, taking them to a red carpet or having them appear in a movie or doing a campaign with them or launching, like, a a product together or something like that. But that is, like, a safe environment that the parents are obviously 
comfortable mm-hmm. with, right? So I think that's kind of where we've got the the separation is that there's some parents who are like happy for the world to know what their kids look like and who they are, but they just don't want them being caught unaware and scaring them out in public. Um, I think like a, a good example of this and how that line is kind of unfair is in the case of Nicole Ritchie. Um, so in 2008, people paid a million dollars for pictures of Harlow Madden, who was Joel Madden and Nicole Ritchie's uh, first baby. And that actually became one of the top 10 most expensive celebrity baby photos sold to magazines. Damn. And okay, like Nicole, cool. Like you do you, that was obviously like an environment that she deemed safe for the baby to be in and was happy enough and gave her consent on. But then two years later, Nicole Richie won a restraining order against a paparazzo because he was caught lurking at two-year-old Harlow's preschool. And I just think it's a bit unfair to be like, that's completely okay because she did a photo shoot two years old earlier. Like, I don't think that can be mm-hmm. the case, you know? So I think we need to recognize the fact that somebody sharing images of their child directly from them is okay, but snapping them on the street and frightening them and lurking outside of school is not. There has to be a difference there. And I think, as I always say, there's a loss of nuance on the internet or in a lot of discussions. And I think this is a big area where we need it. So this month, obviously all these like stories have been quite old, but this month things kind of came back again. And mm-hmm. why? Because Gigi Hadid made a very big statement. So supermodel Gigi Hadid has a little girl named Kai with her boyfriend Zayn Malik, who we know and love from One Direction. And although they spend a lot of time on the family's ranch in Pennsylvania, Gigi also has an apartment in Manhattan, which you may recall as being truly insane. Uh, she spoke about it a little bit last year and it was like, the completely wacky place that had like colored pasta facade cabinets and there was like Mm -hmm. a big yellow pencil or pen and then there was like random new yorker covers stuck on the bathroom wall like it was just the most eclectic yet ugliest apartment i've ever seen Mm -hmm. um but anyway poor Gigi, she is bringing kai into the city a lot and has been having some trouble with it so she posted this to her Instagram story. It's kind of long, but I'm going to read as much of it as possible. She said to the paparazzi press and fan accounts, as our baby grows up, we have to realize that we can't protect her from everything the way we wanted to and could when she was smaller. She loves seeing the world. And although she gets a lot of that out near the farm, she also gets to experience other places, a true blessing on our most recent visits to New York. She started to want her sunshade lifted up so she can, you know, see around in the city And Gigi says, I want her to see the most amazing city in the world and the beautiful and diverse people that walk down the streets of NYC. That is without the stress of the media circus that comes with parents who are public figures. I know the laws change state to state, and I've seen some paparazzi photos of kids in NYC with their faces blurred. But from asking around, I believe that comes down to the integrity of the photographer, publications, or fans sharing the images. I write this all to say, to the paparazzi, press, and beloved fan accounts, You know that we've never intentionally shared our daughter's face on social media. Our wish is that she can choose how to share herself with the world when she comes of age and that she can live as normal of a childhood as possible without worrying about a public image that she has not chosen. 
It would mean the world to us as we take our daughter to see and explore NYC in the world if you would please, please, please blur her face out of the images if and when she is caught on camera. I know it's an extra effort, but as a new mom, I just want the best for my baby as all parents do. So pretty emphatic statement from her there and Mm -hmm. one that is more directed towards the she doesn't want Kai's identity out there. So she did that. And it was kind of interesting because she said that one of her main inspirations for keeping Kai's identity very private is her good friend, Blake Lively, who has achieved a similar sort of situation with her three daughters that she has with Ryan Reynolds. So James, Inez, and Betty, whose names you may recognize from recent Taylor Swift songs. So just a fun little (laughs) fact there. But we've seen pictures of the kids at red carpet events a couple of them not very often they're like a pretty private family but blake lively does not want the children photographed randomly on the street when they're going about their day however this month she was papped in new york city and posted to instagram um, and online by the daily mail australia now the kids faces have all had like stars put over them and then um, in the image so we can't see their faces But next to them is this like other picture of Blake smiling and waving at the camera. So it looks like she's pretty happy with how this whole situation has panned out. Mm -hmm. However, Blake commented on the post uh, to like by the Daily Mail Australia's Instagram account to explain the true story behind the pics, which is actually very different. She said, you edit together these you edit together these images together uh, to look like I'm happily waving. But that is deceitful. The real story is my children were being stalked by a man all day, jumping out and then hiding. A stranger on the street got into words with this man because it was so upsetting for her to see. When I tried to calmly approach the photographer you hired to take these pictures in order to speak to him, he would run away and then jump out again in the next block. Do you do background checks on the photographers you pay to stalk children? What is your morality here? I would like to know. Or do you simply not care about the safety of children? The photographers who would speak to me, I... So she then goes to say there's other photographers who would speak to her. She said, I was able to agree to smile and wave and let them take my picture away from my children if they would leave my kids alone because it was frightening. So essentially, she's saying that she is like, there was a creepy man jumping out at the kids. Um, So in this instance, her main problem is like not so much the identity sharing, but the fact that someone was frightening her kids all day. Um, And then she has kind of had to like use herself as a human shield and do some like bribery where she's agreeing to have her photo taken, but not her kids. And then the daily mail has sewn it together to make it look like the situation's all rosy. So because Blake lively was commenting on the post herself, daily mail, Australia deleted the post, but it's funny because when it was active, her comment had more than double the likes of the actual post. So nice. People were pretty firmly on her side and comments by celebs actually um, reposted it. And Blake Lively, before it was deleted, obviously, and Blake Lively came on that account and commented again. She's obviously very invested in this issue at the time. And she said, thank you for sharing. One simple thing people can do is stop following and block any publications or handles who publish kids' pictures. Feel free to report them or send a DM sharing why you don't follow them. But it's a simple way of... of only aligning with publications who have morality. So I think that's a pretty good instruction there and kind of similar to what Dak Shepard had spoken about. So 
to sort of sum it up there and to take like little pieces from everyone in what I think would be a good course of action for us all going forward. As I have iterated throughout, I am pro protecting kids from paparazzi. You know, I think we already have a lot of laws in place that would stop paparazzi doing harmful things to people who have signed up for that attention. But a child like really legally doesn't have the capacity to make that like to make legal decisions and they have no way of signing up to this. They were just born to someone. So I think whether the parents are concerned about someone scaring their child or about their identity being shared, whatever safety concern they have, I think we should be cool with that. Um, Especially, you know, when the laws pushed by people like Jennifer Garner and Halle Berry are explicitly being like, don't scare them. You know, that should be a, a pretty like low bar. Um, And then I do think that perhaps things like Gigi's and Blake's statements will make a difference because if a celebrity has explicitly said, I do not want you sharing a picture of my child, I do not want anyone to know what they look like, I think you would just look pretty shitty to share it, right? Like it's a pretty bad look. I don't know how you can kind of look like a ethical or like highbrow publication by doing that you can't look classy i mean people like the daily mail will do it but i don't know anyone else really who could stoop to that and just not look really really poor so that's kind of like where the law can come into things and where the publications can come into things but i also think that we can just really question this whole system which we have been doing with things like everything that's been going on with britney lately right we've started going why the heck were we also interested in watching her have a breakdown in 2007? Or when upskirting uh, really made its way into the news thanks to Gina Martin a few years ago, we started thinking about why we were all okay with people taking photos of Lindsay Lohan's underwear when she was like barely 18. You know, we were all totally like desensitized to that and we shouldn't have been. So I think a video that might make you think a little bit twice is there's like an old one that I will link of Northwest going to a ballet class and being led there by I think someone we can assume is like a, a nanny or a friend because it's not Kim or Kanye there's a ton of photographers like outside her ballet class which cannot be interesting to a grown-up right it's just a kid walking to a ballet class like what value can yeah. you really get out of that and she's so so little and she like as she's walking to her little class in her little outfit she's like I said no pictures and it's just like so sad that like a little girl has to already know that. Um, so I think something like that will just hopefully bring it home to you how kind of ridiculous this situation is that we've all come to expect. Because that one, that video really kind of does show the behind the scenes of it. I think we should really click, think before we click. You know, if you see a clickbaity article that's like sharing someone's kid you've never seen before maybe don't click it and maybe do like what Blake Lively said and like let the magazine know on social when you're not happy because as I mentioned at the end of the day like how interesting is like anything that a celebrity child is doing you know really especially if they're just walking a class so I don't think it's enough to warrant their discomfort at the end of the day and yeah I think the big sacrifice I'll be making is that I'm okay with never knowing what Emma Stone's baby looks like. And I really want to know what that baby looks like, but I'm okay with it.
I got to respect her. So, you know, if I can make this hard decision of not knowing more about my best friend, Emma Stone, I think we should. Alrighty, that brings us to the end of another fabulous episode of Different Things Can Be Sad. Micah, what will you be getting up to between now and the end of August when we will all speak again? Um, I'm hoping to do a lot more reading specifically. Same. Um, sitting by a body of water <gasps> and reading for fun. Um, that is my major goal. That's mine too. Oh, we're going to have like really good like symbiotic things to to report next month if anyone wants to catch up with your reading in the meantime where can they do that um they can follow me on instagram at at miss clearwater and the same on twitter yes and i am at yasmin lomax on instagram and our podcast instagram is at dtcbs podcast where you will find lots of goodies about things that have been mentioned in this episode posted there and we would love to interact with you in the meantime but uh yeah the next time we'll be in your ear holes is when we're recapping august 2021 and we will catch you then bye bye